Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today, we're going to speak with someone you've known for a really long time, Roshi Joan Halifax. Actually, I've known her in several incarnations. Uh, (laughs) First, when she was an anthropologist uh, who studied uh, shamans in various cultures, uh, then did work with psychedelics and therapy, and uh, finally found a home in as a Buddhist. So she has so much wisdom to share with us about what we're experiencing collectively right now, end of life, collective grief. And so I really want to learn from her. Good. Let's welcome her on. Roshi Joan Halifax is a Buddhist teacher, Zen priest, anthropologist, and author. She is founder, abbot, and head teacher of Upaya Zen Center, a Buddhist monastery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Roshi Joan received her PhD in medical anthropology in 1973. From 1972 to 1975, she worked with psychiatrist Stan Groff at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, where they did pioneering work with dying cancer patients using LSD as an adjunct to psychotherapy. Roshi Joan has continued to work with dying people and their families and to teach compassionate care of the dying. Her work and practice for more than four decades has focused on engaged Buddhism. Welcome, Roshi Joan. Thank you so much, Victoria. Very nice to be with you again and to see my old friend, Andy. So I want to begin with a quote from one of your books, Being with Dying. You wrote, I witnessed again and again how spiritual and psychological issues leap into sharp focus for those facing death. I discovered caregiving as a path and as a school for unlearning the patterns of resistance so embedded in me and in my culture. So in addition to all your other qualities, you are a wonderful storyteller. And I'm wondering if you could begin to bring this into focus for us with a story. Yeah, I'm happy to try. You know, I remember when uh, Stan and I were working with dying people using LSD as an adjunct to psychotherapy. Uh, there was an older woman who had uh, metastatic breast cancer. We were very close. I, I really felt so aligned with her. And I think she felt that way toward me as well. And at one point, she looked at me really strongly, just right deep into my eyes. And she said, you can never know what it's like to die. And I have to tell you, it was one of those moments where I experienced a kind of, uh, it was like an arrow to the heart or sort of awakening. She was right. And my role was to come alongside her experience and to have the kind of uh, internal arms to hold whatever was present for her. And I also realized that she was a 
teacher for me. And she really opened the, the path of learning from dying people. Um, that I actually, the only thing that I could bring to people who were dying wasn't good advice. It was presence. It was a presence that maybe was characterized by uh, care and courage. So I, I will always feel uh, a debt of, of love in a certain way for um, what she taught me. And from that point on, I felt I was a student to people who were dying. Roshi John, I have to ask you, what do you think of the renaissance of LSD and psychedelics? I mean, it's been a long time coming, and uh, there's a lot of interest in LSD-assisted psychotherapy. Do you still see this as a useful tool? The uh, woman who was the head of palliative care at the University of Arizona said to me a short while ago that it just killed her that she could not use that tool with dying patients because the law is prevented it at the moment. What do you think about that? So it's a very powerful uh, substance, as, as you're well aware, Andy. And I think that um, from the point of view of the work that Stan and I did in the early 1970s, with great attention to set and setting, also with uh, Stan's earlier work in uh, using LSD in a psycholytic context, you know, with multiple doses of smaller amounts, but he, you know, learned so much about the human unconscious. So that um, that was, needless to say, very important in the attitude that we brought into the interaction with uh, dying cancer patients. I think it's a powerful tool. And as such, every powerful tool has its great benefits and also um, has uh, enormous challenges. And so, you know, using LSD specifically as a, an adjunct to psychotherapy, which was our approach uh, at that time, um, was done with such um, meticulousness, such care. And we kind of programmed the whole scene, if you will, for a positive outcome, even if during the context of the, the LSD session itself, the, the dying cancer patient, you know, encountered uh, difficulties. But we were able to contextualize uh, those experiences in a positive way, to frame those uh, experiences in a positive way. So I don't feel like the casual use of it um, with dying people is recommended. Also, I think that Bill Williams, who was part of our project then, who is now and has been part of the uh, Hopkins East Bay project and continues the work uh, using not LSD, but psilocybin. I have a feeling psilocybin is a little more merciful than the, quote, single, single overwhelming dose of 600 micrograms of LSD, which you know produced a, a pretty overwhelming uh, effect. So I, you know, I have a feeling that uh, psilocybin is a, a, a better medium, and, and it's something I think it would be valuable to ask uh, uh, Bill uh, uh, his opinion. This is just my opinion drawn on my experience from decades ago. But I, I think it's worthwhile. It's not for everybody. 
And honestly, Andy, when uh, Stan and I went our separate ways, I wanted to continue uh, working with dying people, which I did. And also, I realized that the experience of dying involved a really profound transformation of consciousness, and that maybe wasn't necessary to actually amplify things to the degree that we did at uh, the research center. But the outcomes of uh, the research were consequential. They were very positive. And again, I think, you know, we were invested as therapists and researchers uh, in producing positive outcomes. So, you know, we just entered into these relationships wholeheartedly. So aside from um, psychedelics, given the enormous cultural fear uh, that people have about dying, the avoidance of thinking about one's own death, that's most typical, I'd say, uh, in our culture, uh, what else can people do to prepare? Uh, I think in some ways the virus has forced most people to contemplate death in a very different way than has been typical in American society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're you're quite right. You know, the exploration of our mortality, uh, you know, from the point of view of Plato, is kind of uh, bedrock of spirituality. And um, whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Jew, um, it is not about avoiding that bedrock. It's actually about exploring it uh, deeply. And you're quite right in our culture, which is not true of all cultures, where we have uh, let go of the rites of passage that uh, produce a maturation for uh, individuals from you know birth, adolescence, uh, childbirth, marriage, et cetera, et cetera, through right on through uh, the dying process. We don't have those rites of passage, which give uh, one a, the kind of existential opportunity, uh, uh, the lived experience of what it means to go through death and rebirth. And so the lack of examination of oneself and of uh, these very fundamental existential perspectives that abide within the psyche, but are unexplored. Um, are, uh, it's, it's really, now we're up against the wall. You know, globally, we're looking at uh, over 2 million deaths. In our own country, we're over at this point, at uh, this time of this interview, well over 300,000 deaths, I believe. And um, so in a way, death is on our shoulder all the time anyway. But now with this pandemic, we're uh, really pushed either to look at what death means, how uh, we can, can die well, and what it means to actually explore our mortality not as something that is terrifying, but is um, actually liberating. Andy, I'm I'm wondering um, from your life experience how you might answer that question about what could the average human being do to prepare for their own death? What practices, uh, what experiences... I don't know that I'm an expert on that, Victoria, but I would say the main practice is to constantly be aware of your mortality, um, you know, and not to try to shut that out of your consciousness, which is the habit most of us fall into. 
you know, one extreme form of that is uh, the Buddhist practice of meditating or Hindu practice also of meditating in graveyards. That's extreme. But even to, to see a corpse, you know, in, in, med- in medicine, I very rarely saw a patient actually die. Uh, that was mostly something that nurses, you know, saw. But I think that let the, the reality of death into your life, uh, not to try to exclude it, is really important. I would say I think about my mortality every day in some way or other. And, and I think that's a good practice. I heard Deepak Chopra recently say that he was doing a meditation practice of trying to really experience the world when he was gone. What would reality be like when he was no longer in, in, existing? Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of things like that that one can do. One of the things that I have done is during Shavasana, which is the very last pose in a yoga class, it's sometimes called corpse pose, I think about being gone, being an actual corpse. And usually the first thing that happens is I think of my mother uh, who died very unexpectedly. And for many years, that was actually very comforting that my mother's image would come to me at the end of a yoga class. And I would think I'm gone and I'm going to be with this loved person in my life. And then when my father died, I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> and I had a yoga teacher who said, well, how about breathe in mom and breathe out dad? And, you know, there was a way in which I was trying to, you know, hold, you know, the presence of both of these obviously seminal people in my life uh, in that moment. But the other thing that I really noticed is the letting go of burden. Like, okay, there are all these things I'm carrying, but if I'm dead, someone else picks them up, doesn't pick them up, but they're no longer mine. That's wonderful, Victoria. There are specific practices in Buddhism that give one the opportunity to actually explore psychophysically, if you will, um, the dying process. Um, it's called the dissolution of the elements, where the uh, earth element dissolves into water, water into fire, fire into air, air into space. And each of those relates to what are called the skandhas, form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, pool, space. And it's very powerful. In our Being with Dying training, we actually uh, just uh, a few days before the end of the training, and I'm always a little quaky doing it, you know, the 60 physicians and nurses uh, on the floor of our zendo in the sleeping lion position um, uh, being taken through this very powerful uh, visualization and I'm always like, oh my gosh, if they knew that you're going to be doing this when they, and they get CMEs. But anyway, do this uh, in the, uh, the process of this training. They, they might not have, uh, you know, signed up. But anyway, that has been a really, one of the most powerful things about the training. Partly it's because the community, there's a great deal of trust, feeling of safety. We've explored things, you know, deeply. We get to that particular uh, practice. People are, um, you know, very open to exploring things. Um, but it is, you know, the Tibetans kind of nailed it. Um, and uh, though it's done while one is, uh, you know, before one is in the uh, active dying process, what is fascinating about that particular practice 
is that if you have sat with dying people or you've had a huge case of flu or you've been with people who are very ill or the aging process, it kind of tracks psychologically uh, from the point of view of the sensory experience and also physically what happens as uh, one unbinds from uh, this world. And there's another practice. Oh, I want to mention, before I mention this other practice, one of the things that I think is interesting, at the so-called death point, there are inner dissolutions, but death from the point of view of Tibetan Buddhism is understood to be the ultimate moment for liberation, for freedom. And I think it's, you know, it's like instead of being some kind of unidirectional gravitational surface where you're just shot into, you know, whatever, uh, forgetfulness and so on, it's the opportunity, the greatest opportunity for awakening, for liberation. And so that the practices that one has done, you know, for uh, one's whole life um, prepares one for that moment, that big, extraordinary phase shift that occurs uh, around uh, dying and death. But another thing that I, uh, comes from uh, earlier Buddhism, which was described in the um, Anapanasati Sutta, is actually, uh, you mentioned uh, Andy, the charnel ground meditation. It is actually visualizing yourself as, uh, or a corpse, as some, yourself or someone else is recently deceased. And then you go through the, the process of decay and finally to dust. And it brings back one of the really important teachings in Buddhism. And, that, um, and it's one of the most uh, essential realizations. And that is the realization of the truth of impermanence. That there's nothing that we can hold on to. Everything is going to go, including our very son. So, um, understanding how impermanence is a constant. Uh, it will prevail. Our end is inevitable. And, and there are other practices, which I don't need to discuss here, to make a whole thesis of it. But anyway, Buddhism, you know, I, I was born and raised in a Christian family, and I was an anthropologist, and I also was very spiritually inclined and very curious. And I just hunted all over religions for uh, a frame of reference that would bring the existential elements related to our mortality into focus. And I found no other religion that gave practices and views that um, were as useful as those found in Buddhism. So I, I ended up being a kind of Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Buddhism seems to have the clearest roadmap. And if one's belief system um, or adopted belief system is there, maybe it's easier. You know, if you, you know, absolutely take that in. Uh, but in our dominant Judeo Christian culture, people, I think, remain very frightened and don't have practices. And I know that. Um, our students are regularly asking, can you give me a script? You know, what can I say? What can I ask someone? Because, of course, they're all expected to have a conversation about code status and um, if people have a living will and have they thought about the end of their life. And they're expected to do that not just with someone who's terminally ill, but as a part of their care. 
and they're unbelievably uncomfortable. Well, yes, of course. And I think that's one of the things, whether it's a doctor or a nurse or uh, a hospitalist or a patient advocate, um, this is, I, I think, why the work that we've done at UPIA and also my buddy, Frank Ostaseski, is just the best. Um, you know, uh, those of us who've been in this field a long time and, and working with healthcare providers, trying to really help healthcare providers develop the capacity to actually address these existential questions, but not as experts. Again, going back to uh, this woman who died of breast cancer, to really be able to come alongside. You know, when people ask me, well, what happens after you die? I'll pause and I'll say, well, let me know your thoughts about that. Can I ask you for, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about near-death experiences and uh, you know what you think about that and is there anything we can learn from them? You know, uh, years ago, actually, it was, I think it was 1970, no, sorry, 1992, um, I uh, was in Dharamsala with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in a small conference called Sleeping, Dreaming, and Dying um, with Francisco Varela and uh, people who worked in the, the field of consciousness. I, I was asked to do the presentation on near-death experiences. So, you know, I got Kenneth Ring and I, yeah, I did all this research and you know, I was very interested in the field because uh, it's an important uh, area because people who experience NDEs frequently end up being very altruistic. Um, you know, they come back, there's a sense of uh, meaning of life, of having a meaningful life, a purpose, a, a sense of deep gratitude, of, you know, having seen something which was extraordinary, perhaps the relatives on the other side beckoning them and so forth. So in any case, I did the whole sort of uh, contour of the NDE. Then His Holiness listened very uh, attentively. And then I said, you know, what, what, what do you think about this, Your Holiness? Um, I, I'm just, I'm curious, is this anything, you know, that relates to the Bardo Todal, to the Tibetan Book of the Dead? And he's, he's so, he was so sharp. He said, those are near-death experiences, not death experiences. <laughs> and I really had to chuckle. I was yeah. hoping for you know a more spectacular answer, needless to say. But now I, I am very congruent with his response. I, I really, I have to say, I burst out laughing. And quite right. I think that he, an NDE is like going through an extreme rite of passage and um, can have very positive uh, outcomes for a person who's experienced it. I'm wondering if we could shift a little bit and talk about grief. There's so much grief right now. There are all of the people who have died um, in our country worldwide. Uh, there are people who have been ill and haven't regained their health. Uh, there are people who are still reeling from the uh, deaths of George Floyd and others, and I think an awakening to the racial injustice that's so prevalent. There's loss of jobs um, and therefore also loss of identity. Uh, there's loss of our social relationships because most of us are spending a lot of time 
sheltered um, alone or with just a few people who we considered ourselves close to. It may be that there is a conservation of suffering and grief. Uh, and no matter where, at what point in history you live, if you look at it, that, that is the nature of experience. And certainly that is you know, one of the Buddha's great insights is that they, at the core of life is suffering. Uh, and I suspect that at any point you think, you know, my parents lived through World War II uh, and the Great Depression. Uh, and I, I just wonder that if at any point you live, there is not this kind of tremendous amount of suffering and grief. The forms may change. You know, Andy, I think that's a, a very important point. And on the other hand, there's something so in your face about this pandemic. And um, yeah, there's something so in one's face uh, around the Second World War, around the bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, around uh, uh, various plagues and wars that have uh, uh, circled our, our globe. But I, I think that Victoria is pointing towards something else that uh, is uh, important that would also you know, relate to the Depression and to war. And that is that um, the sense of radical uncertainty that uh, people are experiencing that is now global. It's, share, it's really shared around the world. And also uh, another thing, for example, there are more people in lockdown uh, today than there were alive during the Second World War. <laughs> And um, uh, where our social relations are actually uh, often perceived as threats to um, our well-being. So, you know, you, you, somebody delivers groceries to your car and you're masked up and you're just hoping that um, they haven't coughed on the, the bag, so to speak. So, you know, it, there's a different kind of wariness that uh, I, at least in... Uh, my lifetime, and you and I are more or less the same age, I think, Andy. I don't know. How old are you now? Shall I? Shall... I am, I'm 78. Oh, me too. That's right. Uh -huh. Yeah, we, right. we share uh, <laughs> We share the same well, you know age. What? A distinction about this time uh, may be the global awareness of it. No, we did not in the past have social media. We did not have uh, television news linking us all together. When you look at the 1918 flu, which had a much higher mortality, uh, people in one part of the country weren't aware of what was going on in another part of the country. So I think there, this kind of global awareness of the situation uh, makes, it some, makes it different. And I think also, Andy, the loss of our daily structure, uh, the loss of social contacts, multiple losses, millions of jobs, um, people's savings and homes, you know, have been, uh, you know, that figures into the equation. And things like people not being able to see their loved ones, you know, like my friend Maya, whose parents are in an elder care facility in the southern part of uh, Santa Fe, where she can't even uh, access her parents, and they're both positive. What about people dying alone and not being able to see their, their immediate Exactly. Relatives? And the effects of, of this, for example, on healthcare providers, and that's something, you know, um, for decades, as, as you know, Andy, I uh, sat at the bedside of dying people. 
but also for decades, I've been working with healthcare providers or uh, with clinicians, doctors and nurses, and the moral suffering that clinicians are experiencing in um, having to be, you know, surrogates, if you will, um, uh, also of uh, not being able to access adequate resources to even take care of their patients. So there's the sense of the loss of moral ground, which is another uh, grief that people are encountering. So it's, I feel that we're grieving the loss of, uh, of a whole way of life, but it's also showing us many things, including um, you know, who our friends really are, whom we really care about, how important our relationships are, how fortunate for those of us who are currently uh, free of the virus, um, that we can uh, have relative health, often because of privilege. It's also showing us the racism in our country, the classism in our country. So it's a, you know, it's a time um, we're in you know, this kind of liminal world. We're not out of this. I have said uh, quite often uh, in the past six, eight months that it's like a global rite of passage that we're experiencing right now. We don't know what the outcome will be, but we don't think we'll be going back to the old normal. So as someone who's been engaged in uh, active Buddhism, uh, not not sitting in a cave, but rather taking all the teachings and uh, putting them at, into action in the world. As we can come out into the world, are there steps we can take to recover from what we've experienced and maybe to create a different world? You know, um, I, I remember uh, something that Terry Tempest Williams wrote. She said, "A good of mine, a good friend of mine, said you are married to sorrow." And I looked at him and said, I'm not married to sorrow. I just choose not to look away. And I think it's really important that we not look away. Um, this time that we're in is, uh, we'll, I doubt if in uh, uh, the lifetime even of younger people, it's 100 years, a little over 100 years since the Great Plague of 1918, the pandemic of 1918, this is so radical, so wild what we're in. It is global. We're so hyper-connected and yet we're distant. Our mortality is right in our face. Uh, uncertainty is um, now our way of life. We have no idea what is ahead. And as a result of that, um, what we're seeing, and you know, this is kind of wild, you know, Upaya is this beautiful, very intensive place of practice uh, here in this country. But what has happened is that there are uh, literally uh, thousands and thousands of people who have now opted into our community in order to practice, in order to explore the truth of suffering, in order to understand something about their relationship with dying and death and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's bringing people, if you will, to the source of um, what it means to be, I feel, truly human. Andy, you have spoken about how you learned about the 1918 flu epidemic because your grandmother told you stories about it. And yet, it mostly is not a story we've told 
very often in our society. I mean, I know there was a a book, um, I don't remember now whether it's a decade ago or 15 years, The Great Influenza, but we mostly actually didn't bear witness. I think we mostly put the lid on it as fast as we could. Now, you've heard uh, what, me say that, uh, you know, I was, I don't know how old I was, but it seems to me I was something in the realm of seven, eight, nine, ten. that my grandmother used to tell me these stories of Philadelphia, which was the hardest hit city uh, on the East Coast. And she told me these stories of horse-drawn carts of corpses going through the streets of Philadelphia. I, that made a very strong impression on me. You know, it sounded like something out of the Middle Ages. And I, when I was in high school, I tried to get information on that. And there was none. Uh, it was as if this had been culturally repressed yeah. uh, because it was such a heavy experience and people couldn't deal with it. Gosh, Andy, that is such an interesting observation. You know, I wonder um, what that did to um, the generation that came out of that pandemic. What, what do you think? You know, also that that uh, pandemic was distinctive in that it killed, selectively killed young, healthy people uh, and tended to spare the old and very young. So that must have been especially frightening. It was people in their 20s and 30s who were in the picture of health, had a headache in the morning and were dead in the evening. Uh, it must have been unbelievably frightening. And as I say, I think it was culturally repressed for many, many years. And it wasn't really until the 1990s, I think, that scientists began looking into the question of why that flu was so deadly and thinking about what was special about the virus. Nobody had paid any attention. to. But I'm also curious, Andy, your thoughts on um, how this uh, would uh, affect the psychosocial landscape, for example, of the mid-20s to the, the mid-30s. Well, remember also this came right at the end of World War One, so the double whammy. And, and right uh, I can't um, before World War Two and the rise of Absolutely. fascism. Yeah. So that must have been a very formative event for you know people in our parents' generation. Well, I mean, do you think there's any relationship, for example, about the presence of the pandemic and um, a more, well, this might be too far out for us to talk about in this context, but, you know, what's happening in this country politically at this time? Well, I think when people are afraid and there's great uncertainty, there's a tendency to gravitate toward uh, those who tell you how it is and that make sense of things and uh, seem to represent order and stability. And maybe that does that is a um, you know something that leads people toward fascism and leaders who uh, espouse that kind of philosophy. Yeah, this, certainly yeah, anyway, uh, yeah, interesting observation. Thanks, Andy. So, I'd love to hear closing thoughts that would help us with the grief, um, especially you know we we as you do train a lot of healthcare professionals and. Um, while suffering may always be a part of life, they are seeing more death than is um, at all common for uh, doctors, for doctors in training. Um, and they have been really brought to the brink. One of our faculty uh, who works with residents, Patricia Levinson, told me recently that they're beyond burned out. Uh, they, they just have suffered and seen so much suffering. And I want to know what we can do. Um, I haven't been um, providing hospital care. What can we do to help heal? 
Well, this is a really uh, powerful question, uh, Victoria. And, you know, one thing I want to say is that it is essential, I believe, at this point to acknowledge the moral suffering that clinicians are experiencing, including, you know, moral distress, moral injury, moral outrage, and moral apathy, or, you know, the numbing out experience. Um, and also uh, feeling, experiencing moral disengagement and identifying, um, you know, uh, these domains of, 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 uh, of harm, internal harm that arise um, from confronting, uh, dying in the magnitude uh, that uh, clinicians are confronting and not having the internal resources or the external resources to provide adequate care. So it's a violation, if you will, of one's own vows uh, as, as a clinician. And they, I believe that um, we will be involved for uh, a long time in repair, in addressing these harms uh, to one's sense of, you know, what one's very character. Now, I, you know, I know at, uh, at your place and at my place, there's a big emphasis on the value of contemplative practice in terms of uh, engendering uh, insight, but also most importantly, um, the, the importance of compassion. And, you know, years ago, I did a heuristic map of compassion and then developed a, a tool called Grace, which uh, it allows people in a very uh, direct way to cultivate compassion while they're interacting with, uh, with others. These kinds of practices, I feel, are really important to share with clinicians um, and for, for also for clinicians to understand that uh, compassion is uh, a win-win-win situation. That is, we know now from the point of view of neuroscience and social psychology that um, experiencing compassion has uh, interesting health benefits and also psychological benefits. We also know that people who receive compassion uh, are benefited. And we also know that people who witness those who are compassionate feel morally elevated and want to engage in acts of altruism and compassion. So I think one of the really important things for us to do in this uh, process of uh, confronting the trauma that clinicians, many clinicians are experiencing and the moral suffering that many clinicians are experiencing and naming it, working with it skillfully um, uh, is to actually provide the tools for clinicians to go back into service um, with more capacity. And those tools, I think many of them uh, are not you know, just in the sort of simple algorithms of giving care, but they have to do with the development of uh, internal qualities related to attention and uh, intention, insight, and so forth. I, I think it is useful always to remind oneself and others that grief and grieving are normal processes. Uh, they are, in fact, healing processes. That is the way that we come to terms with loss and suffering, accept them, and move on from them. And it becomes a problem when people get stuck in some phase of grief and we can help them out of that. But I think realizing that that is an absolutely normal reaction and a desirable one, and it is in fact a healing process. Andy, I think this point is really uh, important. Um, 
the normalization of grief and to understand, you know, from the point of view of positive integration of trauma, um, that it it actually enhances our character. And I look on uh, grief, the experience of grieving is one of the um, the most humanizing of our human experiences. For example, just the, the blessing of humility and to know that um, loss is inevitable and the, the cherishing of relationships and uh, the development of moral character and the experiences you suggest, Andy, that um, spiritual transformation uh, is uh, often the outcome of grief. Well, that seems like a very hopeful and beautiful note to end on, that the grief can lead to transformation of character. I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us, Roshi Joan. We are deeply appreciative. Thank you. It's so great to see my old buddy. We're old now, Andy. Yeah, really. <laughs> really. really. Lovely to see well, thank you both. It was an honor. Yeah, good to see you. I want to, um, just one last thing. I heard you say um, on something, someplace you were interviewed, that grief is love that has nowhere to go. Yes. And I wonder whether that's why so many people are reaching out to your center. Because if we can come together communally, you know, it gives it a place to go. Yeah, this is what I, I'm experiencing now, uh, this uh extraordinary intimacy, even though um, we are physically distant one from another, but um, we are through this uh, fascinating technology, um, able to meet each other in ways that we never anticipated. And we've been driven together by the pandemic and the, the suffering in this world. Thank you. Thank you. Stay well. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. Mm-hmm.